This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. The October 7 attacks and Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza has sent shockwaves through Australia's Palestinian and Jewish communities. Earlier this week, we spoke to Palestinians and Palestine supporters who have been protesting each week, calling for a permanent ceasefire. The response from Australia's Jewish communities has been varied, ranging from fear at Hamas to frustration and anger at Israel's response. I think recently has been one of those times when the brutality has escalated and come to the fore. So for me, it's been hard to watch. Many are also fearful of the rise in anti-Semitism here. Almost everybody I speak to here from the Jewish community, you know, it's like we're broken. In this episode, Guardian Australia reporter Daisy Dumas sits down with four Jewish Australians in Sydney for personal, in-depth conversations about what this moment means for their safety, for their loved ones and their worldview, especially when it comes to Israel. Today, Jewish Australians on fear and hope. It's Thursday, the 14th of December. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Daisy, you've been interviewing four members of Sydney's Jewish community to find out how they're thinking about the Israel-Gaza war and also the environment in Australia over the past few months. What have you heard so far? Firstly, it's important to say that there are so many views out there. The community doesn't move as one. And um, that really came across in these interviews. I met four really interesting people, different backgrounds, different ages across Sydney. They've got different political views. And there are some things that join them. They're quite united in a couple of ways. And that is mostly in the fact that they have noticed anti-Semitism and... There is fear. There is fear in the community. And this might be a war that is happening many thousands of miles away, but it is being felt here on a daily basis by many, many Australians. Mm. Tell me about these people. So I met with Chaim. It's a beautiful day. And we are in a park in the shade under some trees because it is absolutely blazing out here. Could you first of all tell me who you are, how old you are, and where you're based? My name is Haim. I'm 38. I am an intern at the hospital, first year out of medicine. 
He's pro-Palestinian and he's really upset by what's going on in Gaza. At the same time, he has a lot of ties to Israel. How many relatives do you have in Israel and where are they based? Dozens. Uh, generally in the cent- central, like around Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or Ramat Gan areas. The moment he heard what was going on in Israel on October the 7th, he, he started messaging his family and his friends and his relatives there. He was worried about them. So I messaged everyone from the various branches to just check if everyone was okay. And thankfully they were. There was one cousin who had a close call. She was in the Ofakim settlement when the Hamas fighters attacked. And she described looking out the window and seeing fighters roaming the streets. But they managed to escape in the, in the night at the, on, at the end of Shabbat and head back north. Another person I spoke with was Elena. My name's Elena. I'm a retired school teacher. She's based in the eastern suburbs, and I actually know her because she lives in my neighbourhood. And how long have you been here for? I came to Australia in the end of 1983, so I've been here a long time. (laughs) I came from the US, from New York. Elena is 75, and she was living in Israel during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. When I was a student at Hebrew University and the war broke out, it was a surprise, and the Yom Kippur War, and it lasted the whole year, pretty much. I wouldn't compare it at all to anything that people went through in the, in the kibbutzim or what the people in Gaza are going through, but You know, it was my own experience and it was frightening and I've never forgotten it. And she said that when she saw what was going on 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 October the 7th, she immediately had this really visceral reaction. So when this war broke out on the exact same day, (laughs) well, the war didn't break out, the attack, uh, the October 7th attack that happened, It created a PTSD in me. I have a friend who was there. For a little bit of context for our listeners, the Yom Kippur War is so named because Yom Kippur is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And back in 1973, led by Amwa Sadat, Egypt and Syria led a coalition of Arab states in the surprise offensive. It was an attempt to undo the Israeli victories of the Six-Day War in 1967. And that war lasted for about three weeks. It just triggered in me this kind of fearful and and helpless and frightened. I remember we had to go to the shelter because bombs were falling. And I brought my dog along and they wouldn't let him in. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm not going to leave him out there. And they said, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I mean, I I just had such a naive approach to it all, an understanding of it all. And then I was standing outside there with him, and I thought, what am I doing? This is crazy. You know, I, I have to go into the shelter. And then during October the 7th, Elena saw shelters similar to the ones she had used in 1973 come under attack. So when I heard the stories, the shelters were built, against bombs, not against terrorists breaking in and putting bombs inside the shelter or dragging people out or shooting at them. 
And they have to be open so that all the people in the building can come in and out. So I, I just had such a vivid picture of, well, you can never know exactly what they went through, but it just, tra- it still does. Even talking to you about it now, I feel very strongly. It's an image, it's a, like a movie that's running through my head that I can't I can't turn off. Are you are you sleeping okay? No. Not at all. And I don't know I mean all of my friends in the Jewish community are having the same experience and I heard one person say it's can't stop being October 7th. Like when is it going to be October 8th? No, I can't sleep. That's the first thing that went. And also, I would say normally I'm a pretty positive person and I feel like all my naivete, all my hope, all my trust in the world has just been shattered. I know my sisters in New York feel the same way and almost everybody I speak to here from the Jewish community, you know, it's like we're broken. <laughs> So, Desi, it sounds like, you know, the 1,200 people killed by Hamas and the more than 200 people held hostage is front of mind for people. But I can imagine another part of this picture is the fact that for many in the Jewish community, they're descendants of Holocaust survivors. How has that influenced their response? Yeah, very much so. Everyone I spoke to has intergenerational trauma stemming from their parents or grandparents being Holocaust survivors. And the effect that has on them can't be overstated. People are living with this pain every day. And what's going on now is only bringing that to the surface. It's really evident when I spoke to to all four people. I have antenna. All of us Jews have antenna. You know, we we react to negative things possibly um, because of that. We're more sensitive. Uh, People might say, why are you so sensitive? There's a reason for it. I spoke to Joe, who's a really active member of Sydney's Orthodox Jewish community. I'm 70 years of age and I'm based in Sydney, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. I am a, on the way out, retiring accountant. He volunteers at his synagogue a lot. He takes some of the weekday services there and is a real supporter of, his, of the community. Joe's parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother was liberated from Bergen-Belsen. She was in Auschwitz and in Bergen-Belsen. My father was in a labor camp, a Nazi labor camp, building the railway tracks, which the Allies then came and bombed. And so my, in terms of family, everybody was lost. My mother and father, both children of a family of nine, ten children each. They both survived with one sibling. So I come from a Holocaust survivor um, parents. Uh, didn't know family, lost everybody. And till now, you've had the expression, never again. And the expression, never again, more than ever now, has become really very um, front and centre, yeah. So, Daisy, we do know that Australia has recorded a massive uptick in both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. How has that affected the people that you spoke to? 
Yeah, there's been a really big uptick. At the end of November, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry stated there had been a 482% rise in anti-Semitic incidents across Australia since October the 7th. To put that into context, because that's quite an abstract number, on a regular week, there's about one incident and now there are dozens. Mm. Also, on the other side, there's been a huge rise across Australia of Islamophobic incidents. The Islamophobia Register has recorded a 1,300% rise in cases since the 7th of October. So again, massive figures. And when I spoke to these four community members, they all told me that they hadn't actually been on the receiving end of of any anti-Semitism. But they all know friends, cousins, teachers, family members, people in their communities who have encountered it. I didn't feel any change to my life as much. Everything that has happened, I have just seen from the uh, news reports. So when I spoke to Joe, he told me that he has taken to wearing a baseball cap over his kippah. As you probably know, the kippah is a small cap that Jewish men wear on their heads. In my daily life, one thing perhaps that may have made a difference is, you can see here, for a while now, I won't go with a kippah on the street. And uh, certainly as recently as Sunday afternoon, we were at a function in the city. We were walking through Hyde Park and saw people gathering. I certainly was wearing my hat. Even before that, I have felt uneasy to show myself as a Jew in that sense. So I wear my hat, not to identify myself. What did you think when you heard that story, Daisy? I was pretty shocked, Laura. I I was amazed that a 70-year-old man has taken to covering a really large part of his identity. It's something that he's always worn. It's something that is very common in the Jewish world. And in the last few years, he has started covering it up. And that's a really critical point to make because he didn't start wearing the cap after October the 7th. This is something that has happened in the last few years. But for a relatively old man who knows Sydney well and is a really active member of his community to to take to doing that and 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 hiding that part of him i think says says a lot you also spoke to someone called anna who said that anti-semitism is affecting kids can you tell me about her yes yeah, so anna is a mum she's a philanthropist and a business owner okay first of all please could you tell me your name your age and where you're from My name is Anna, I'm 40-ish, and I live in the eastern suburbs. Again, she's from the eastern suburbs. That is probably the largest portion of Jewish people in Sydney live in the eastern suburbs. Anna's got young children, and she sends them to a a childcare centre near her home. It's a Jewish childcare centre, but it is very open in terms of the people who, who attend. There's all sorts of cultural backgrounds there, she said. And that centre in particular has taken to tripling the amount of security that it has since October the 7th. I think security has been upped, you know, maybe it's three times the amount or four times the amount at some of our communal buildings. When you've had a number of threats, are you going to take the chance? Are you going to take the chance on your kids at school? So Anna told me of um, friends of hers who have got kids who have been on the receiving end of hate speech. And these are these are little kids on the street wearing their Jewish school uniform or some kind of identifying feature in what they're wearing. And they have been on the receiving end of, of verbal abuse since October the 7th. I have, you know, friends whose 
children have been abused, like verbally abused, wearing their um, Jewish school uniform. You know, I've had things being yelled at, not to myself personally, but there are lots of stories of anti-Semitism. As, as frightening as they sound, these threats have been going on for years in Australia and, and around the world even. It's sad to say, but a lot of the Jewish community lives with this on a daily basis and has grown very used to it. And it's normalised in some ways. One of the most visible incidents of anti-Semitism that's been widely reported on and commented on by the Prime Minister was the chance at the pro-Palestine protest at the Opera House not that long after October 7. What did the people you spoke to have to say about that? Yeah, that moment really changed things for a lot of Jewish people. When I spoke to Anna, she said that that uh, protest in particular made her feel really unsafe. When someone is yelling, gas the Jews and fuck the Jews, you take that pretty seriously. There's a place for two truths. One is that anti-Semitism and all forms of racism is incredibly dangerous. And the second is what's happening in the Middle East, in Israel and Palestine, is undeniably horrible and incredibly confronting. And one shouldn't negate the other. And somehow they have been. Now, it's important to note here that the organisers of that pro-Palestine protest have condemned those chants and they say they tried to move those protesters on at the time. There have also been some doubts raised by supporters of the protests about whether one of the chants, the, the gassing chant, was used and the New South Wales police are investigating but are yet to confirm what, what wording was used on the night. Regardless, this protest sounds like it's had a big impact. Yeah, definitely. It made her feel unsafe. And she wasn't the only person who mentioned those protests in particular to me. I think that they had huge ramifications. Speaking to Haim, the, the doctor we, we heard from earlier, it was very clear that no matter where you stand, no matter what your background is, there is a real heightened sense of anxiety and fear. I was perhaps surprised by, although I don't think I should have been, but I was perhaps surprised by the ferocity of the reaction from the community here, the, the, the defensiveness, the, the fear, the paranoia that has developed since the attack. I think Jewish communities generally have, especially ones that are, have a large proportion of Holocaust descendants and survivors, there's a strong current of anxiety and fear and a sense of precarity and being under siege. And I think that the attacks on October 7th have stirred that up. Next, we discuss Israel's assault on Gaza. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you're hearing a lot about this anxiety in the Jewish community. I'm wondering how they feel about what's happening in Gaza and the rising death toll there as well, particularly amongst children. How do the people that you speak to feel about Israel's actions? So they all acknowledge that it's a tragedy. Some of the people I spoke with followed that with a but, and others didn't. On one level, humanitarian level, of course, it's terrible. If you believe the numbers, and I'm not saying the numbers are not correct, but these numbers that are coming out are coming from the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas. So I'm not suggesting the numbers are wrong. But if you accept the numbers and the number of children being killed, terrible. It's a terrible thing. But this is a war, a war that Israel did not start. When I spoke to Joe, it was very clear that he was on the conservative side on this issue. Israel is not a barbaric, aggressive country. Israel is a democracy with a rule of law. And it is terrible that people are dying on both sides. But it is a war. And that's what happens in war. Israel is trying its best to mitigate the numbers. Daisy, I just want to add some context to some of Joe's points there. Firstly, that idea that Israel is trying its best to mitigate the numbers of deaths. Since you spoke to Joe, the Australian government has issued a joint statement with New Zealand and Canada calling for a sustainable ceasefire and saying that the price of defeating Hamas cannot be the continuous suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Secondly, Joe raised some doubts about whether we can trust the number of deaths that we're, we're hearing. What do experts say about the death toll? According to the UN Human Rights Office and other experts, the number of deaths as reported by the Hamas-run Health Office, which currently stands at more than 17,000, is actually likely to be underreported rather than overreported. And that's pretty much because they don't know how many bodies are buried under the rubble. As gruesome as it is, there's still a lot that are unaccounted for. Also, we don't know about people who died on the way to hospital, for example. Those aren't included. So Joe is broadly still supportive of Israel. What about the others? Well, Elena was a really good example of the confusion that I think a lot of people in the community are feeling. You know, I can't... You know, if I, I don't have the answer. I wish I did have an answer. I wish somebody had a good answer. But it makes me sick what's happening now, and yet what can they do? I, I don't know what they can do. Like, it's just more of the same, and I don't feel, I, I do for the first time, don't feel repelled by the idea of eliminating Hamas. She's absolutely standing in solidarity with her family and her friends in Israel, and yet she's really torn over the death toll in Gaza. This is particularly interesting because Elena's got a real history of being someone who stands up for people's rights and has always identified as being someone on the left. She was in the famous group of people who protested in California against the Vietnam War. She was a Berkeley University student back in the day, and she's always been um, 
unafraid to take action. And here's where I struggle the most because, you know, my, I've just been a leftist my whole life. But even when I was a student and an activist and so on, I remember always feeling an outlier when it came to issues about Israel. Um, almost every other area I would agree with, and I'm not whitewashing Israel. I despise Netanyahu and his right-wing government, but I, I am a believer in the right of Israel to exist. And yet at the same time, how can I possibly, with my history, how can I possibly condone anything that Netanyahu does? You know, it's just, if you can see what I'm saying, like it's just this invidious situation where there's a saying in Hebrew, lozer lozer, not this and not that, you know, it's just, it doesn't go either way. And yet I don't feel caught in, I don't feel in the middle, I just don't know where to go. She's confused now. She doesn't know where she stands and she doesn't know what the answer is. And once upon a time she felt she kind of knew and now she doesn't. What about Haim, who, as you said, is more broadly supportive of Palestine? Haim is much more certain of himself in terms of where he stands politically. And just as, a, as an onlooker, he's absolutely appalled by what's going on in Gaza. Yeah, for me, so for me personally, I think that in, in, in Zionist history, there have been times where Israel has acted brutally in trying to establish a state and keep the state. And I think recently has been one of those times when the brutality has escalated and come to the fore. So for me, it's been hard to watch and to see how people react to it and to see how people defend it. So that has, I suppose, in a sense, reinforced a, a sense that I have that this Zionist dream, the cost is, is, is too high in blood and, and it can't be avoided. So Haim is kind of firmly against Israel's actions here. There are other groups such as Jews Against Occupation who not only show up to pro-Palestine rallies but help organise them. Can you tell me a little bit about how and why Haim came to this position? So Haim used to be part of a Zionist youth movement and was quite active in that space as a youngster. For many years I was very much into that worldview. It was a, a labor Zionist, so a kind of a left-wing group, which straddled a very precarious kind of balance between liberal and humanistic values on the one hand and the belief in a Jewish state. The group tried to balance that and, and we and tried to engage us with many different perspectives, which was which was nice. And so for a long time I tried to thread that needle. But then over the years, I became more critical and skeptical of that idea. I still hold that the Holy Land, Israel, Jerusalem, Zion is a central part of Jewish culture and history. But I, have, I hold that separately from this idea of a, a political project to have a, a Jewish state on that land. He says that while he knows of some other young Jewish people who feel similarly to him, most people he grew up with are more supportive of Israel than he is. 
And this moment has made him feel like more of an outlier than ever. I think that the way that the community has responded has made it hard for me to feel a part of the community at the moment. So, Daisy, before we heard about, you know, some very different views across the four people that you spoke to, we have seen in recent weeks a really growing pro-Palestine movement. There's tens of thousands of people turning up to protests, but alongside that have been a lot of actions and rallies and solidarity within the Jewish community as well. What did they have to say about those movements and their engagement with them? A commonality across these people's experiences is that they're finding solace in the community. There are some small gatherings held in private homes. Joe's gone to some some rallies quite publicly. Haim has joined a Facebook group for medical professionals who are in support of Gaza and Palestinian liberation. Anna has been holding interfaith face-to-face meetings with Jewish, Muslim and multicultural communities. She's really keen to get a conversation started and and real empathy and community awareness around differences and, and try to really talk that out face-to-face with people. Action is the antidote to despair. And I believe in conversation and I believe in people and I believe that at the moment, you know, this is a very strange time because we're spending most of our time on social media as opposed to having one-on-one conversations and seeing the other person as a human. Anna felt that what was going on in Israel was something that's going on many thousands of miles away and that she couldn't influence. Her opinion is that she needs to focus on what can be done in Sydney because that's what she can really affect in her day-to-day life. You know, this is where she lives. This is the community she lives and works in. She wants to focus on Sydney rather than on Israel. So four people, four different perspectives. It doesn't cover off what everyone in the Jewish community is thinking. But looking forward, what are they hoping will happen in the coming days, weeks and months? It's actually a great time to ask that question, Laura, because right now we're in the week of Hanukkah. It's a festival of light and it's a good moment to ask people about whether there is a little bit of positivity and as they look forwards. People want peace They want solidarity. But what that looks like, again, depends on who you are. And that really is the key point in all of this. I want my children to be able to share their heritage and be proud of who they are and what their great-grandparents went through as immigrants to come to Australia. And I want them to be able to share other people's stories as well with an open mind. And I think that I want to coexist in harmony. What bonds us is the want for peace, especially in Sydney and within our Australian community. It looks different depending on what your background is and what your opinions are on a conflict that's taking place many thousands of miles away. Solidarity for one person can mean backing Israel and never giving up on that side. I think things will go back to normal at some stage. I think the Jewish community can feel safe, can feel safe. I hope so. Just generally, we are a strong community and, yes, positive, strong community and we we will ride it. 
we're not going to coy. And for somebody else who's also in the Sydney Jewish community, it can mean building a real sense of understanding and compassion for the Palestinian people. In terms of what I hope for the future, I do think that the next generations are more open and they're, they're becoming more educated and hopefully groups that have come up in my generation, like, and they're out there opposing the occupation and out there trying to pressure Israel and diaspora communities to more seriously engage towards peaceful and political solutions. And I think that's probably going to continue. And and I think that the next generation will hopefully be even more vocal and more involved. That was Guardian Australia reporter Daisy DeMar. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Pamela Ronziokas. Sound designed by James Milsom. The executive producer is Miles Mutnioni. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This year, build your credit history with the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. No credit checks to apply. Get started at chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Chime checking account and a 200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply.